Hey, welcome back to the Eastside Agent Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Butel. This is brought to you by Cleveland Street Mortgage. And uh, today, I want to start out with antidotes, like usual. I want to start out with antidotes. And, and, and um, you know, this is, uh, this is about, not about a specific house and a bidding war or not a bidding war, a price point or a number of buyers or sellers. Um, but more generally about move-up buyers um, becoming landlords and how that's that's kind of a you know, it's kind of a plus and a minus you know it's good and a bad thing. Um, spoke with one agent representing some buyers in the Bothell area, and they are move-up buyers. You know their family's growing, they're looking for that bigger house. And of course, the good news is that you know they are representative of more and more of these move-up buyers who've been stymied for the last you know year year and a half as interest rates have risen. And they've got kind of these golden handcuffs that are sitting on that great interest rate on their existing home and they don't want to let it go. And, and, and that just has given a lot of them pauses. Everybody knows that's not really news, um, to many people. And, but they have kind of finally overcome that. They've kind of finally gotten past that and they've, they've realized that, you know, the family dynamics, the, the, the life circumstances are such that we can't wait forever and we're ready to go ahead and, and take that step. Now, what they're doing, what the interesting twist on this is, and this is also not something completely new in the market, of course, but I think it's just more and more representative of what some of these people are doing. They're hanging on to the, they're hanging on to the existing home as a rental property. And they're doing that because they kind of look at that and say, we, we do have this great interest rate on this, on this property and they don't want to let that go. It's hard to let go of that 3% money that you've got invested when replacement money right now is at six or seven percent now they're going to get that replacement money at six or seven percent so hanging on to this property doesn't allow them to eliminate that in fact it, it probably increases the amount of money they'll have to borrow you know at that higher interest rate because they don't have the equity but it does represent an interesting phenomenon and it does a couple of things one is it increases rental supply right people who move out and then don't turn around and sell that home, convert it to a rental or increasing the supply of rentals. And that puts downward pressures on rents. And we've seen that reported uh, in, in a number of different ways. Uh, Weedner is a large local area apartment manager and they're reporting you know, some uh, downward pressure on their um, rental rates. Um, but it also keeps inventory tight, right? So instead of this traditional move up buyer, buying one, selling one or selling one, buying one, they're buying one, they're taking one off the market, but they're not contributing one back to that market. So that increases the, you know, the, the demand and, and contributes to the you know, ongoing tightness in inventory. So that's kind of a double whammy for investment property owners. You know, right now they're seeing rental values pressured downward to some degree, and it varies very much. You know, this is local, you know, by market. Um, inventory is still tight, so values are holding. Of course, interest rates are still high. Now, the takeaway for me is that, that it's a net positive. Move-up buyers are coming back. And that's really kind of, to me, what the big story is, is that move-up buyers are kind of finally getting over that reticence to move in this market, to realize that, hey, I can't wait forever for this life move. This It's time for this life move now. And that move-up buyer is coming back. And that's the net takeaway. Um, rent pressure, downward that, that helps us with inflation. And of course, inflation is the big bugaboo that, that the Fed's concerned about, that it caused them to go ahead and increase interest rates these many times over the last, you know, however many months that we've been doing this. And, and kind of my final maybe takeaway from this is first time home buyers, keep your powder dry, you know, because investment buyers are going to take longer 
to react when rates respond favorably. You know, they've just got a lot more factors to consider. What are rents doing? What are prices doing? What are rates doing? Where a first-time homebuyer is just sitting there in their apartment ready to go, ready for that big life move. And you can really go out there and understand that, you know, any, any increase in supply, there's going to be less competition from those investment buyers. So, so I think it's a net, it's, it's a net positive overall. Um, plays that work. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about email marketing. And, uh, one just, you know, credit where credit's due. I listen to podcasts. I steal their ideas. Um, this again is kind of from a, a Tom Ferry podcast. And basically this was about email marketing. And, and they just had, you know, this, they actually had nine or 10 different tips that I think were valuable. Um, in this 40, 50 minute podcast, but really a couple of takeaways that I said. One, he said, when you, if you're going to do email marketing and you really shouldn't, um, overlook this, um, you know, obviously we think this is old and, and some people think, oh, it's outdated. We don't do that anymore. Kind of like postcards, right? We don't do that anymore. Both of those still have a valid place, but email in particular, you know, it has a far larger audience than any other social media platform. Far larger than any other. Everybody uses email every day. And of course, social media is, is huge. And the number of subscribers and users is, is enormous. And the ways that you can reach people you know, are different, of course. But email reaches far more people every single day. So we really shouldn't discount that. Uh, but one of the things they talked about is, you know, the subject line is super important. Right? The subject line is super important. Um, but don't write that at first up front and then go and go in to write the body of your email. Write the body of your email, whatever you're you know, wanting to grab the attention of your buyer, whatever call to action you have, write all that out first and then go back into your subject line because then you really know kind of what's the most compelling aspect of this thing that I'm sending out that I want people to do. So write that last. There's also um, different services have different um, uh, tools available. There's a subject line tester, um, omnisend.com slash subject line tester with hyphens in between. Um, that's something where you can go, of course, Omnisend, you know, all of these, um, all of these services, all of these tools have a free level and then they have kind of a paid version where you can do, you know, more robust things. But that's also, a, you know, a resource that's out there. It's a subject line tester that will tell you kind of what kind of engagement, what kind of opening, open rate will you get. And then, um, be aware of what the preview text policies are of your, um, of your CRM provider, of your email marketing provider. You know, if it's MailChimp or whatever, a lot of them have a, you have the ability to, to customize how you want the preview text. And some of them, for example, will have a pre preview text that, that highlights the, um, the privacy opt-in, opt-out information. Well, that screams to the, to the potential client, to the person that you want to open that, that this is spam and you should ignore that. You know, this is something that is just not important. It's spam. So make sure that that's not what shows up first in your preview line. You know, a lot of times they just default to the first couple of lines of your email, and that's fine too. But you may have the ability to direct it, you know, to customize that with your um, uh, newsletter provider or your email marketing provider. And uh, take a look at what your options are. Don't, don't overlook that. Also, the sender name, make sure it's yours. You know, not just the domain name, not the company name, but it's you. You know, it's you. Our business is very much a personal brand business, whether you're in the realtor part of the business, mortgage side of the business. It's a personal brand business. So make sure that the sender name is you, not your company name. Um, so personalize it. Of course, you want to, yeah. And, and these things, some of these things do become kind of obvious. Dear Patty or Hi Patty, you know. Um, and then mobile optimize. That's something that's also important. Of course, we're always... 
on our mobile phones. We, you know, most of the people that are going to be seeing this for the first time and maybe the, you know looking at it at all are going to look at it on their mobile devices. So you want it mobile optimized. You don't want them to open it up and have to scroll back and forth because that's just too much work, too much of a hassle, too annoying, and most people aren't going to do that. And then for people that do sign up through these services, make sure you have an automated welcome message back to them. Um, you know, when they sign up for your newsletter or they get your email and then they sign up for subsequent um, iterations of that, make sure you send a welcome message back to them. And again, many of these providers have these services available. Um, on the economic news front, um, uh, interest rates finally had a good kind of sustained week. And that was on the, on the strength primarily of good inflation data. You know, we have We've had a consistent string of, of really good inflation data that's come out. And that's not been completely on the positive side. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But by and large, the, the major reports that, that the Fed are watching, they've come in consistently in a positive direction, showing that inflation, the rate of inflation growth is, is slowing. Inflation itself is decreasing in many areas. And that's what the Fed's stated you know, objective is, that's what their stated responsibility is, is to control inflation. So, of course, that makes the Fed, that makes the market feel better about what the Fed might do in the future. Now, the reason that we're not seeing a, a very um, more, a more dramatic turn in interest rates right now is, is you know, the Fed, like some of the Fed um, governors or a year ago when they started this cycle, said, look, we really want to see the Fed funds rate about the same as the inflation rate. Well, back then, the inflation was up in the sevens and the eights, and the Fed funds rate was down the ones or the twos. And so, you know, there was a big gap there. Well, those things have crossed now. You know, now the Fed funds rate is higher than the inflation rate. And the Fed has not used that as an occasion to say, okay, we've achieved that objective. Now we're going to stop or we're going to start reversing course. We're going to start lowering these. Because there is a lag effect on what the Fed does. There is an expectation that what the Fed does doesn't have an immediate impact. Some of that's going to happen later. Um, but we haven't seen the Fed come out and say, okay, we're done. You know, for, of course, they telegraph that they're going to send, you know, they're going to raise rates at least two more times. Now, why is that? I think, you know, primarily because they're very concerned about job, the job market. The job market's still very solid. They want to see fewer job opening, openings, more unemployment. Um, data that came out this past week showed that, we showed that uh, wages are uh, in excess of um, the inflation rate. Wage growth is in excess of the inflation rate. And the Fed's really afraid of, in, of wage inflation driving general inflation to the point where it becomes like a 70 style runaway inflation. And, the, and they're petrified of that. They're terrified of that. And so really don't expect to see the market sort of take, take a deep breath and, and really start to believe in the Fed kind of discontinuing the, the, the cycle that they've been on to raise rates and actually start to think about lowering them until we see the, the, the jobs market cool down a little bit. I think until that time, it's always going to be a little tentative, but I think the more positive inflation reports we get month to month to month is going to build pressure on the Fed to lower those. Finally, kind of wannabe um, viticultural vignettes. You know me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wannabe viticulturist. I want to grow some grapes. And uh, it's a fantasy, you know. Um, but uh, one of the things I'm learning about this week is, is bricks, which is basically, you know, it's, it's also known as degrees balling. And it's the percentage of sugar in grape juice. And because the presence of sugar in the grape juice raises the specific gravity of the grape juice above one, and that's the specific gravity of distilled water, you can use a hydrometer 
to measure bricks, you know, which is the percentage of, of, of sugar in the grape juice. And so, and that's, you know, the, the, the harvesting of grapes is a very scientific process. You know, these vintners go out there and of course they taste it and that, that has a lot to do with when they harvest it. But they're measuring, they're measuring, you know, they're measuring bricks, the percentage of sugar, they're measuring acidity and various types of acidity. And they really have specific metrics in mind. Um, and, and the amount of sugar in a grape gives you the total potential alcohol. You know, and it gives an idea, for example, a, a, a bricks measure gives you an idea of what the final alcohol would be if the grape were fermented to dryness. And so, you know, you see these tables that they will, that these vintners will put out or, uh, you know, that are historically accurate numbers that tell you, okay, here is the bricks number and here is the potential alcohol. And really the highest that these numbers go to is a bricks of about 25 or 25.3 in this particular table that I'm referencing. Um, and the reason for that, that, there's a point in which the alcohol concentration becomes sufficient to kill off any remaining yeast. And so, for example, at a bricks of 25.3, there's a potential alcohol percentage, alcohol by volume of about 15%. And above that, once the sugar content gets above that, then the alcohol content kills off the remaining yeast. And the yeast is, which, is that which is acting upon the sugar um, in order to create the fermentation process and produce the alcohol. So that's kind of... Be, becomes kind of a natural cap or a natural maximum alcohol percentage. Sometimes in cooler regions or cooler seasons, that bricks level, it's the, it's the, the later sun and the harvest that will bring out that sugar content. Sometimes if that sugar content doesn't get high enough, they will add sugar um, to the must, to the, to the grape skins, the crushed grapes and grape skins that are fermenting together to increase the potential alcohol. It doesn't change the flavor because, you know, the sugar is fully converted, right? It's fully converted alcohol. Um, so sometimes they'll cheat a little bit and use that. But uh, that's your point for the day.